Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. I'm Nate Fisher, and this is the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. Our channel has hundreds of world history documentaries, but we know that you can't watch them all the time, so now we're turning them into podcasts. Welcome to Timeline Tapes. This week, we begin a new three-part journey into the ancient city of Sparta. We'll start by exploring how the Spartan culture was established and how they rose to dominate Greek society. The voice of the show will be Bethany Hughes, who will lead us through her journey across Greece. The story of the Spartans takes me on a journey through some dramatic history. And there's a setting to match. A huge peninsula, crowned by rugged mountains and scored by deep gorges, that forms the southernmost part of the Greek mainland. The ancient Greeks thought of it as an island. It does have a brooding, closed-in feel, cold-shouldering the outside world. But long before the Spartans of our story arrived on the scene, this part of the world was making history. Many of the Greeks who fought in the Trojan War some 3,000 years ago came from here. Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, ruled over Mycenae in the eastern Peloponnese. And to the south, in Sparta, was the palace of Menelaus and his wife Helen. For Helen of Troy, whose beauty caused the Trojan War, was once Helen of Sparta. But at some point around 1100 BC, it all disappeared. No one knows for sure what happened. Earthquakes, slave revolts, even asteroids have been blamed. But all over the Eastern Mediterranean, the world of Helen went under in a cataclysm of fire and destruction. A remnant clung on for a few hundred years, but finally, the Dark Ages came to Greece and the thread of history snapped. And during those centuries of darkness, out of the north, new people came, seeking more hospitable lands. They brought with them a new Greek dialect, their sheep and goats and a few simple possessions. They settled all over the Peloponnese, and some found their way to the lands that once belonged to King Menelaus. It was a journey worth making. The people who came here must have thought they'd found a Shangri-La. 50 miles north to south of precious, fertile farmland. And a river runs through it all year round. In land-hungry Greece, where 70% of the land can't be farmed and the rest is squeezed between the mountains and the sea, that's a lot of elbow room. 
To the west are the spectacular Tajitas Mountains, rising to more than 8,000 feet in places. Patches of snow still linger, while down on the plain, spring is turning into summer. The slopes once teemed with game, deer, hare and wild boar. Rich pickings for the new arrivals. But what statistics can't convey is the striking quality of this place, a fantastic sense of security. Everywhere you look, on every horizon, you're bounded by hills and mountains. It's not claustrophobic, just safe. You feel that everything you could possibly want is here if you could just lay claim to it and keep the rest of the world at bay. And so the herdsmen traded in their sheep for olive trees and settled down here. A new Sparta came into being, and the new Spartans built this temple, the Menelaean, to honour the legendary king and his wayward wife. In the period of renewal following the Dark Ages, new cities like Sparta appeared all over Greece. They varied in size and power, but had one thing in common. They were all governed by a set of mutually agreed laws and customs. The rules by which people agreed to live varied, but the aim was broadly the same, to create good order and justice and to protect against chaos and lawlessness. Today in Sparta, archaeologists are still piecing together the story of the people who first came here some 3,000 years ago and built an ideal city, a utopia. It's not an easy task, because they left few clues behind them, and much of what they did leave was buried or destroyed when the modern-day city was built. But whenever there's a building programme, precious new pieces of the puzzle are revealed. Every find is precious because the Spartans didn't leave us much in the way of stuff. Unlike the Athenians, they were famous for not building, for not making things, and for not writing about themselves. So of all the cities and civilizations in the ancient world, the Spartans remain the most intriguing and mysterious. Take, for example, Sparta's kings. Since time immemorial, Sparta had not one, but two kings at the same time. Two royal houses, twice the potential for the rows that all monarchies are prone to. The Spartans explained this unique arrangement by claiming that their kings were direct descendants of the great-great-grandsons of Heracles, the strongman of Greek myth. According to legend, it was this pair of twins who wrested control of the Peloponnese from the descendants of Agamemnon. The stories that people tell about themselves are always revealing, and this tale of a land grab by a pair of aggressive usurpers themselves descended from the most macho man in mythology sent out a worrying message to the neighbours. And it wasn't long before the Spartans started throwing their weight around, seizing control of the whole of the Eurotas Valley, enslaving non-Spartans, or categorising them as perioikoi, meaning those who live around. The perioikoi became a disenfranchised caste of craftsmen and traders, Sparta's economic muscle. But sorting out their immediate neighbours was just the start of Sparta's aggressive expansionism. Despite the generous acres of the Eurotas Valley, Sparta, like the rest of Greece, was always hungry for more farmland. 
Other cities dealt with this by founding colonies. Satellite settlements that would eventually spread as far west as the Straits of Gibraltar and as far east as the Crimea in the Black Sea. The Spartans came up with their own take on colonization. They turned their eyes west and began to wonder what opportunities there were beyond the mountains. It was there that they would go to satisfy their land hunger. It was there that Shangri-La would reveal its darker side, because it was there that a slave nation would be created to serve the Spartan master race. The journey through the gorges of the Tajitas Mountains is as spectacular now as it must have been some 2,800 years ago when the armies of Sparta headed west in search of conquest. Several days hard march through the mountains would bring them to the territory of the Mycenaeans. The Spartans weren't just coming for their land, they wanted their freedom too. They intended to turn the Mycenaeans en masse into helots. The word translates as captives, but means more bluntly, slaves. Slavery in ancient Greece was an accepted fact of life, but slaves were supposed to be foreigners, barbarians who spoke no Greek and so were obviously suited by nature to servitude. The enslavement of fellow Greeks, and on a massive scale, was something else again. And the crushing of Messini would set Sparta apart from the rest of Greece. It also shaped the kind of place Sparta became, wary of unrest, paranoid about revolt. Enslaving the Messenians was no easy task. It took two full-scale wars, each lasting 20 years or more. We know something about the Second War because we have an eyewitness to the events, one of the first identifiable eyewitnesses known to history. He was called Tertius, a Spartan soldier, and just as importantly, a poet. It is a fine thing for a brave man to die when he has fallen among the front ranks while fighting for his homeland. Let us fight with spirit for this land and let us die for our children, no longer sparing our lives. Come on, you young men. Make the spirit in your heart strong and valiant and do not be in love with life when you are a fighting man. Tertius was a war poet, but hardly of the Wilfred Owen school. I doubt he had any concept of the pity of war. His verses were more like battle cries, barked out with the directness of a sergeant major, putting backbone into the shirkers and faint hearts. Look, if you want this land, you're gonna have to fight for it. This is the kind of fighter that Tertius addresses in his poems. He was called a hoplite, an infantryman armed with an eight-foot spear and round shield. By the end of the seventh century, practically all Greek cities had their own contingents of hoplites. These weren't full-time professional soldiers. They were farmers who swapped plows for spears in defense of their communities. By standing side by side with their neighbors, these militiamen demonstrated not just their courage, but their status as citizens. This is Olympia, home of the famous games. It was also the unofficial shrine of the hoplite fighter. For this was where you'd come to dedicate your arms to the gods in thanks for victory. Hoplite fighting was a team effort. Half your shield was for you, the other half for the man to your left. 
the hoplites would form into densely packed ranks, called a phalanx. Seven or eight deep, and perhaps 50 shields across. Coordination and discipline were important, but most important of all was trust. If your neighbor broke and ran, you'd be left exposed to the spear points of the enemy. When two phalanxes met, the tendency was for each line to shift to the right. Your natural instinct was always to tuck yourself as far as possible behind your neighbor's shield. At that moment, the discipline of the phalanx threatened to collapse. To be effective, you just had to grit your teeth and stand your ground. Tertius had some typically helpful advice. Those who dare to stand fast at one another's side and to advance towards the front ranks in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, they die in smaller numbers and they keep the troops behind safe. There wasn't much in the way of tactics once the shield walls came together. The battlefields all but disappeared in a dust cloud as the two opposing masses of bronze and muscle heaved against each other. The rear ranks provided the traction, pushing forward like rugby players in a scrum. It was in the front three ranks, within range of the enemy's spear points, that things got deadly. It was there that you'd have come face to face with a gorgon emblazoned on your enemy's shields. This was the goddess whose gaze had the power to turn men to stone, and in the sweaty, stabbing frenzy of the battle, ending up inches from her must have been a literally petrifying experience. Ultimately, Sparta would surpass all other Greek cities in the art of this particular kind of fighting. But first, they had to beat and enslave their neighbors, the Mycenaeans. This was finally achieved around the year 650 BC. For the next 300 years, the Mycenaeans would be forced to slave in the fields of their Spartan masters, like asses worn out by heavy burdens, according to Tertius. But now that Messini had been won, the critical question for the Spartans became, then and for centuries to come, how do we keep it? Elsewhere in Greece, cities were being torn apart by civil war between rich and poor. With the spoils of Messini up for grabs, the chances of that happening in Sparta were greatly increased. To keep their paradise safe, the Spartans chose to act in a totally radical way. From now on, Utopia was their aim. They would dedicate themselves to the creation of a perfect society, and it would be modeled on the hoplite phalanx. Disciplined, collective, and unselfish. There was going to be a revolution in Shangri-La. Every revolution needs its great leader, Lycurgus, the wolf worker. I can't put my hand on my heart and say that he existed, but the Spartans believed in him. For them, he was a miracle worker, someone who created heaven on earth following the advice of the gods themselves. Whether it was him or a bunch of people or a whole generation, who knows? But someone here embarked on a social experiment that would create one of the most extreme civilizations in the ancient world. The revolution that transformed Sparta took place around 650 BC when Sparta's neighbors, the Mycenaeans, were finally defeated and enslaved. In order to keep the helots quiet, and as importantly, to stop themselves falling out over the spoils of war, 
the Spartans set out to become the most formidable, disciplined and professional hoplite warriors that Greece had ever seen. The whole of Spartan society became, in effect, a military training camp. Spartan men would neither fish nor farm, manufacture nor trade. They would simply fight. And if they weren't fighting, they were training. And if they weren't training, they were hanging out with their fellow fighters. The family unit counted for very little. What mattered was bonding with their male peers, bolstering the solidarity of the phalanx. It was a programme that they pursued with typical single-mindedness. Being born Spartan was not enough. All male Spartans had to earn their citizenship through long years of competitive struggle and the survival of one of the most gruelling training systems ever invented. The first test came early. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We rejoin our host, Bettany, as she visits one of the most haunting places of Spartan history. This ravine, a few miles out of Sparta, was known as the Apothetai, or Deposits. It was also called the Place of Rejection, because it was down there that a newly born child would be thrown if he didn't match up to Spartan standards of physical perfection. Infanticide was common throughout ancient Greece. Unwanted babies, usually girls, were left on a hillside. Sometimes they'd be placed in a basket or protective pot so that there was at least a chance of someone or something coming along and taking the child in. In Sparta, as ever, things were very different. 
boys rather than girls were the usual victims. And it wasn't the parents, but the city elders who decided whether they lived or died. And there was absolutely no possibility of a broody vixen or kindly shepherd rescuing the newborn child once they'd been tossed down there. The city elders' decision was final and absolute. Surviving the apothetai was just the start for the boys. At the age of seven, they were taken from their families and placed in a training system called the agogi. It means literally rearing, and the children were treated little better than animals. They were organized into buai, the Spartan word for a herd of cattle. An older child was put in charge of them, responsible for their discipline and punishment, and he was known as a boy herd. Emphasis was on surviving, coping on the minimum. Each child was given just one cloak to last them all year round. Food supplies were short, and they were encouraged to steal to supplement their rations. If they were caught, they were flogged, not for the act of stealing, but simply for not getting away with it. It was as much a trial by ordeal as it was an education. The mountains also provided the backdrop for one of Sparta's most controversial and disputed institutions, the Cryptaea, or Secret Service Brigade, membership of which was reserved for the boys who'd shown particular promise. The really hard cases were singled out, given a knife, and turned loose into the wilds. By day, they'd lie low, but at night, they'd infiltrate the valleys, hunting down and murdering any helots that they caught. Exactly how the Cryptea operated and the kind of hit rate it had has always been a mystery. But the mere rumor of bloodthirsty adolescent death squads roaming the countryside was enough to institute a reign of terror, the perfect tactic to keep a slave population quiet and obedient. Though Sparta encouraged the collective spirit, it placed as high a value on individual achievement. The boys were tested constantly against each other and against their own limitations. It's easy to find yourself reeling back at the sheer brutality of a system that seems as alien and violent as these clay masks found at the sanctuary of Artemis Orthia. And it's not just modern audiences that find the Spartans shocking. The philosopher Aristotle argued that they turned their children into animals, while other Greeks pictured them as bees swarming around a hive creatures stripped of their individuality. It's been a popular conception of Sparta through the centuries, but one that misses an important point. Being a part of any mass activity can be fantastically liberating. If you've ever been in a Mexican wave in a football ground or sung in a choir or taken part in a protest march, you'll know that being part of a crowd doesn't diminish you, it makes you stronger. Your reach is greater, your sense of self is magnified. And that was the fundamental attraction of the Spartan system, the possibility of transcending your limitations as an individual and becoming part of something bigger and better. From the age of 12 onwards, the boys' training became, if possible, even more exacting. Reading and writing, we're told, were taught no more than was necessary, but music and dancing were regarded as essential. The battlefields on which hoplites clashed were once memorably described as the dancing floors of war. And a phalanx that was able to move together in a coordinated way made for a formidable dancing partner. So the Spartans spent many hours perfecting what was known as war music, 
a rhythmic drill in which changes in direction and pace were communicated musically. The Spartans earned the reputation for being the most musical and the most warlike of people. At the age of 20, with their training nearing completion, Spartan males faced their most crucial test. Election to one of the common messes or dining clubs where they'd be expected to spend most of their time when they weren't training or fighting. But entry to these exclusive gentlemen's clubs was not guaranteed. Election to the common mess was by the vote of existing members. If you failed to measure up, you could be blackballed. And then that was that. You were a failed Spartan, publicly humiliated, excluded from the society into which you'd been born. It must have been a living hell. If, on the other hand, you were elected, you were given a big, fat portion of land by the state and a quota of helot slaves to support you and your family. You are now one of the homioi, the equals, the warrior elite at the top of Sparta's hierarchy. The common messes, which lay a mile or so out of the centre of Sparta, were an essential part of the city's social engineering, intended to keep discord and civil strife at bay. Old and young mixed here, easing generational conflicts, a constant source of friction elsewhere in Greece. More importantly, rich and poor met on an equal footing, the differences between them hidden by a rigorously enforced code of conspicuous non-consumption. In egalitarian Sparta, the rule was, even if you have got it, don't flaunt it. And it was applied to everything, from houses to clothes, even to food. Elsewhere in Greece, rich men would lay on a couple of prostitutes, crack open some amphora of wine, and invite their mates round to feast on lark's tongues and honey-roasted tuna. In Sparta, there was no time for fine dining. In the common messes, the dish of the day, every day, was a concoction made of boiled pig's blood and vinegar, known as melas zomas, black soup. An old joke goes, there's a man from Sybaris in southern Italy, the town infamous for its luxury and gluttony, who was told the recipe for black soup. Ah, he said, now I understand why the Spartans are so willing to die. Spartan frugality may have shocked their contemporaries, but to a modern audience, their diet, leaving aside the black soup, sounds nutritious and healthy. Spartan society was one of the first to introduce a form of social contract where the duties of an individual were balanced by certain privileges and rights. It's a profound concept and one that was current in Sparta a hundred years or so before any other Greek city was even beginning to think along similar lines. But utopias need protecting. And in the year 480 BC, disturbing news reached Sparta. The Persian Empire was on the move. A huge invasion force was heading west by land and sea. The time had come to see whether Sparta's celebrated warriors would live up to their fearsome reputation and save the Greek world from destruction. Leonidas was Sparta's superhero. The king who, with 300 warriors, made a doomed last stand against the might of Persia in the pass at Thermopylae. We know very little of the real Leonidas. He was a member of the Agadai, one of the two aristocratic families that supplied Sparta with her kings. 
He'd been on the throne for 10 years when the Persian juggernaut began to roll west. Persia was the regional superpower of the Eastern Mediterranean, a vast empire stretching from present-day Afghanistan to the Aegean Sea. The Greeks were an insignificant but increasingly troublesome presence on the western limits of their empire, inciting rebellion among the king's Greek subjects in the cities of Asia Minor. It was the Persian king, Darius, who made the first move. He sent punitive forces to land at Marathon, only to see them routed by Athens and her allies. The king died before he could avenge the insult, and it was left to his son, Xerxes, to sort out the troublesome Greeks once and for all. The Persians set out by land and sea early in the year 480. The army was so vast that, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, it drank whole rivers dry. Herodotus also reckons the combined Persian forces at more than one and a half million. A more sober estimate would put the ceiling at 300,000, big enough to crush the minnow-like cities of Greece. When the Spartans learned a Persian invasion was on its way, they sent for advice to the oracle at Delphi. Oracles were thought of as messages from the gods delivered through the mouth of a possessed priestess. The Spartans were deeply pious, and they treated oracles as though they were military orders. On this occasion, the orders made for sobering reading. Beneath the flowery language, a simple choice was on offer. Capitulate or fight to the death. The Spartans, being Spartans, chose the latter and put themselves at the head of the resistance to the invasion. As the Persian army swung south towards the Greek heartland, a Greek force under the command of King Leonidas headed north to stop their advance at Thermopylae, the Gates of Fire. The Greeks were hopelessly outnumbered, but they did have geography on their side. If they could just slow down the Persians, it would allow others to organize more formidable defenses on land and sea. But for Leonidas, and for the 300 Spartan warriors who'd accompanied him, Thermopylae was more than a strategic strong point. It was the place where they intended to show the world what it meant to be a Spartan. As a whole, the Greeks made a great deal of noise about the nobility of dying for your country. But for the Spartans, it was far more than just a platitude. In battle, they were ordered to seek out a kalos thanatos, a beautiful death. It encompassed everything that the poet Tertius spoke of, advancing calmly to meet your enemy, never fleeing the battlefield and embracing death like a lover. In fact, on campaign, the Spartans would make offerings to Eros, the god of love. The beautiful death was a sacrifice in the true sense of the word, turning something mortal into something sacred. The men that Leonidas chose to do the job for him here were all married, older and with sons. He knew none of them would be coming back. The Spartans who fought at Thermopylae were a 300-strong kamikaze squad. For three days, the Greeks held off the Persian advance, sheltering behind their wall and then counter-attacking in hoplite formation. Three times the Persians attacked, three times they were beaten back. Xerxes had almost given up, and then he was told about a secret path that went through the mountains and came out behind the Greek wall. 
When Leonidas discovered the Persians were on their way, he knew the game was up. Before long, the Greeks would be surrounded. While there was still time for them to escape, Leonidas dismissed most of the Greek allies, setting the stage for one of history's most celebrated last stands. On the final morning, the Spartans followed their normal pre-battle rituals. They stripped naked and exercised. They oiled their bodies and combed each other's long hair. They wrote their names out on little sticks and fastened them to their arms, dog tags, so their bodies could be identified later. Persian spies observing these strange activities reported them back to Xerxes, who found them laughable. It was said it looked as though they were getting ready for a party. In fact, they were making themselves matesois, kai eleutheriotorois, kai gorgotorois. Greater, more noble, more terrible. Herodotus describes the final act. In the morning, Xerxes poured a libation to the rising sun and then ordered the advance. The Greeks under Leonidas, knowing that the fight would be their last, pressed forward into the widest part of the pass. They fought with reckless desperation, with swords if they had them, and if not, with their hands and teeth, until the Persians coming in from the front and closing in from behind overwhelmed them. Militarily speaking, Thermopylae was insignificant. The Persian advance, delayed for less than a week, was soon rolling south again. Shortly afterwards, another battle took place, here in the Bay of Salamis, where a Greek fleet led by Athens destroyed the Persian ships. It was a scrappy hit-and-miss affair, but Salamis finished what Thermopylae had started, and the following year, the Persians were finally driven out of Greece. In the aftermath of victory, it was the doomed heroism of Thermopylae that captured the imagination of the Greeks. Thermopylae was a stage upon which the Spartans played out the role they'd spent their lives preparing for. They'd shown the world the kind of place Sparta was and the kind of men it produced. They'd fulfilled the ideals of their city and justified the claims of their utopia. And by doing that, according to Herodotus, they had laid up for the Spartans a treasure of fame in which no other city could share. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for this week's episode of The Spartans, but tune in next week as we explore the growing tensions between Sparta and Athens. If you can't wait to learn more, you can head over to our YouTube channel where we've got many more documentaries to watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a short review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money. 